Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message.
director uh, of Go Ministries is actually here this morning. And uh, we're going to give you an opportunity afterwards to talk to him. But I'm going to bring him up on stage here. Joseph, come on up. Give him a hand as he comes. And and uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to pray um, for this event. We want to invite you to do this because we know that the kingdom of God advances while the saints are on their knees, and we know that God invites us to participate in His kingdom work by inviting Him into His kingdom work. And so we want to pray this morning. But Joseph, is there anything you want to just share with the cross country? Now put me on the spot. We just totally. Uh, we were just chatting about this last night, so we're just doing a camp style this morning. So, anything you want to share with us, just from your heart? I like people spontaneous because the kingdom is very spontaneous. Yeah, yeah. Just very genetic. How the kingdom moves, and how the kingdom works, and how God is interacting with his people is very affectionate in a very loving way. We do not need to be studying its history, but for a program to love people. And that's what I mean when we think of missions a white man reaching darker people. <laughs> but that's not the case. <laughs> I am dark and reaching out to white people. Yes, right. Uh, yeah. I was born and lived in Egypt. And here's my wife, Jenny. Yeah, we're in Egypt. Oh, there she's right there. Uh, Jenny was, uh, grew up in Germany. We met in Africa. We married. We were in Africa for a while. And then the Lord brought us to Canada. And I didn't know why. But in a couple of years, we started to know exactly why. Because the Lord is up to something awesome. And we moved into this facility as an office just a few weeks before the uh, first point. Yeah, yeah. Both in. And we said, that is not a coincidence. That was just found as one of the best things to celebrate in 2018. It's too far from the first point uh, in many different ways. Uh, one of the things that we are doing the Christmas event for, the two things everybody does not like to hear or do not like to experience is loneliness and fear. Right? Nobody likes to be lonely, nobody likes to be afraid. And that's exactly what the Muslim community struggles with. We have over 100,000 Muslims in Edmonton. 100,000. And uh, the people who are trying to reach to them with the love of Christ are very small. Very, very small. So, one of the things we are working on, as an example of what we are doing here with you this morning and for the coming few years, is to partner to equip and send the church out to go and make disciples of Muslims. Making disciples is starting with building trust, with building love. And they are coming, most of them come from a very communal society. We love to be with people. So at Christmas, for the last couple of years, we have been visiting homes and giving them gifts. The people said, no, we will partner with Crosspoint in this area to invite them in so they can experience what Christmas is all about. They can see the love and affection and then the point to connect with them. This connection point up in the economy. So when they are here, you just go, meet them, educate yourself, invite them over for tea. Or go to the house. They are very generous. We would like to have you. Do not be afraid. And we have an orientation session. Yeah. You can eat before. That's right. So whoever would like to join, they are welcome. I would be uh, speaking about different things, how to love without fear, and how to break the barrier of cultural and yeah, no, that's great. And, and, and yeah, and that's especially important is that you come and you learn. And, and you'll be there. And, uh, yeah. and what I appreciate about the approach they have is, is that this is a, this is a function of cross And they come along and empower the local church 
to do this ministry. So it's, it's, it's a partnership, but you were saying, hey, the ball's in your court, Crossbow. You guys are the ones who are doing this. We're just coming along to, yeah, to help you to do it. So I really appreciate that. I love that, Rob, what you say, because the owners, it's not about go brand or Crossbow. Yeah. It's about the kingdom of God. Yeah. And so I'm giving you the honest benefit and you take them run. Because the numbers are overwhelming. And, uh, and you can. We can. We have a lot to offer. But it's just about So it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. We're pretty stoked about that. You guys stoked about that? Okay. So, uh, are you yeah, even five? That's all right. <laughs> okay. Um, so why don't we pray? Uh, could you pray for us? I pray for this and then uh, and I'll close in prayer as well. Okay, but why don't we stand? Can we stand and pray together? Stand in the presence of the Lord. He's here. He is good. And his ears and his heart are bent towards us. So let's, let's pray. Father, we lift you up in high this morning. We give you praise. We give you worship. We adore you. We love you. We respect you. And we stand before you in awe and wonder about what you are able to do and what you are capable of doing. You are up to something awesome and great, and we have the privilege of joining you in this great mission. Your spirit is already moving in Edmonton, North Edmonton, and in Liberty area, and Castle Dallas, and the Northwest, and the Northeast. Your Holy Spirit is moving and changing lives, and we have the privilege of just walking behind you in your victory. And you're afraid of your victory coming and bringing people back home. Father, I'm praying for anointing this morning. I'm cross-pointing and anointing as a leader of this spiritual authority that's back here that you are the president. And praying, Father, that you would send them to go and be approved. You would send them to go and make disciples. You would send them to go and bring people back home and snatch them from the darkness, the kingdom of darkness, the loneliness of the And praying, Father, that this year Christmas will be different than any other Christmas. We will think outward. We will think about those who are lost and they will need them family. And pray about each one here this morning who you are talking right now to them, and to fill them with being and compassion so that you will go and bear fruit. Father, we are praying for you this morning to enjoy you. We are praying for you. before you and we are enjoying what you are doing. So, Father, we pray your blessing for us. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the world as you see it. You open our hearts to, to believe and trust that you are bigger than anything we could ever conceive of anything we can imagine. Lord, so we pray that you would give us faith and unity, Lord, to believe that uh, you can do this work in us and through us and through all of your other children and the children of God who live in this area. So, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would go before us. We pray your Holy Spirit would go and, and would begin to um, reach into the hearts and the minds uh, of those who you are called. We pray that you would um, push back the darkness to work again who has clouded the hearts of our believers. We pray that you would come God, I pray you give us courage and you give us um, just hearts of compassion that break for the sake of the So, we're trusting you for this day that's ahead of us. Thank you. That we have this great honor and privilege to participate with you in your kingdom work in the world. So go before us, we pray. And we pray a blessing on our brother Joseph and his ministry. God, we protect him, that you would give him courage, you would give him compassion. 
God, you cause what they are doing to prosper for your glory, to your delight, Lord. And uh, God, that uh, you would reach uh, people through their ministry uh, who are far from you. Great ministry. So bless them. Uh, bless Jimmy and his family and all of those who are part of the ministry. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And everyone say, Amen. Amen. Hey, let's give them a thank you. Let's look at this together. Some people believe it's a test of your faith, but if you don't have a faith to believe in, it kind of makes you wonder why. Why is he suffering in this world? And Normal 
in our human reality, human experience, to go through suffering. And I think the reality is sometimes we can make sense of suffering, okay? So, for example, when somebody does something really, really dumb, really, really stupid, uh, we might agree that they maybe got what they deserved. As a matter of fact, in, in, our, in, our, in our language, we have all sorts of idioms that we use to express this very idea. Uh, you made your bed, now you've got to lie in it, right? What goes around comes around. Uh, from scripture, a man, a person, reaps what they sow. Okay, so, so sometimes we can, we can make sense of suffering. We can say that, yeah, I, okay, I can see why that would have happened. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I can recall one time many years ago, uh, the Chartrand family was around the dinner table, and this kind of played out. Uh, this is when my, my children were teenagers. They're now uh, out of high school. Uh, it was taco night. It may have been a Tuesday. And uh, I had gathered fresh jalapeno peppers from my garden, brought them in, I chopped them up. And one of my daughters, um, she who will not be named, uh, had a stuffy nose. And I don't know what happened, but uh, I maybe casually suggested that she might want to stuff a couple of jalapeno seeds up her nose to clear her stuffy nose. I know, it's a Father of the Year award, right? Uh, so she was game to try And she took those seeds and she shoved them up her nose. And unfortunately, it had very little effect. I was very disappointed. But then she suggested, well, would it maybe work if I took some of the juice from the jalapeno peppers and rubbed them on the inside of my nose? And I thought, that might be a very good idea. Yes, I suggested that could work, but it's really up to you to decide whether or not this is something you want to do. I'm not forcing you as your dad to do this, but if you want to shove jalapeno juice up your nose, have at her. Well, as it turns out, her runny nose problem was solved. Uh, it worked very, very well. Uh, and, of course, she spent the next hour at the table. She was running down her face. I used stuff up her nose. And uh, she didn't have a problem with her runny nose after that. And, and, and as I was happening, I was sitting there watching her. Really disappointed in myself. Um, genuinely concerned for her well-being. But asking myself the question, I wondered if any day I might be able to work this into a segment. I'm not sure how, but I really hope I can. Now, sometimes, sometimes we can make sense of suffering. Sometimes a person just reaps what they sow, or what their father sows. But there is, and I think we'll all agree, there is much suffering in the world that we struggle to make sense of. We have difficulty understanding why is it that bad things happen to good people? Uh, why is it that the innocent suffer? Or, or why do we see disproportionate suffering? Or perhaps somehow undeserved suffering? You know, what do we do with the Holocaust? What do we do with the killing fields uh, uh, of Cambodia? The genocide of Rwanda? What do we do with a drunk driver that decimates a child's life? What do we, what do, we do with a, a man who walks into a church building and just starts opening fire on innocent parishioners? What do we do with that kind of suffering? And, and I think it's this kind of suffering that often stops us dead in our tracks, and they raise all sorts of questions. We ask the question, well, where is God in all of this? And, and, and doesn't he care? And, and if he does care, then why doesn't he do something about it? Now, I, I've discovered that when people ask this question, they're typically asking this question from two separate angles. On the one hand, there's the, the rational or the intellectual angle. But on the other hand, there's the, there's the personal angle. The rational angle, of course, is that very real intellectual problem of how a good, all-powerful God can allow suffering. 
But the personal angle is much more experiential. We're looking for very real and practical answers. And sometimes it's asked by somebody who's experiencing suffering in a very personal, real, visceral way. So this morning, I, I want to invite us to, to look at this question, but I want to look at the question actually from both angles, uh, because I think that's really, really important. I know that in a community of this size, there are some of you who are suffering right now. And, and I think to answer this question, just grappling with those talking about it personally, would be a disservice to you, because I know that God cares a great deal about your suffering. And so I want to talk about that. But we're going to have to begin this morning by talking about it from a rational standpoint, from an intellectual standpoint. And that's going to be our starting point. So let's dive into that. I want to start by examining the question a little bit more thoroughly. As we saw from the video, Barna's research uh, says that the, the problem of evil suffering is one of the more common objections that people have to believe in God. And as it turns out, this is actually a very old objection. But the, the, the objection finds its all the way back three centuries before the time of Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a Greek philosopher named Epicurus who was the first one to come up with it. And then the, the argument was then resurrected in the 18th century by a agnostic philosopher known as Steve Hume. And of course, since then, uh, atheists and the new atheists have been bringing this objection up again and again and again. A simplified version of the argument goes something like this. How can I believe in an all-powerful, all-loving God when there's so much suffering in the world? And it's a really good question. So I'm going to break that question down into some bite-sized parts. First of all, here's the, if God is all-powerful, then that means he can deal with the problem of suffering. But if God is all-loving, that means he, he will or should deal with the problem of suffering. Okay? So either God is unable to deal with the problem of suffering because he's powerless or impotent, or God is unwilling to deal with the problem of suffering because God is wicked. So the reality of suffering at the end of the day therefore disproves the existence of God. So what do we do with this question? What do we do with this problem of evil argument? Is it watertight? So let me respond to this in three ways this morning, and I hope that you'll, you'll track with me as I do that. Consider these three responses. Here's the first one. Is, is that suffering is hard to understand from a finite or limited perspective? Let me say that again. Suffering is hard to understand from a finite or limited perspective. See, see what the argument ultimately assumes is that suffering that we have in our world is, is pointless. And it also assumes that God should somehow deal with the problem of suffering immediately, in the now, right now. But here's the problem with this objection. Just because suffering seems pointless to me doesn't necessarily mean that it's pointless, period. Just because I cannot imagine a reason for suffering doesn't mean that God might not, in fact, have a reason for allowing it to be. Uh, the truth is that I, I actually don't have the brain power. I don't have a, I don't have a wide-angle perspective to see the point behind suffering. But God does. And God might have a reason that somehow outpaces my limited thinking. So I want you to think about it this way. If you are mad about suffering, if suffering makes you mad, and you're mad at God because God has not, has not stopped evil in the world, then that means there's a reason why you're mad. And you have to kind of unpack, what is the reason why I'm so angry and mad? And I think the reason why I'm mad is because I believe that God is actually wise enough, loving enough, and powerful enough to do something about suffering. 
But if that's true, if I can conceive of a God who is so big that he can actually do something about God, then that means that he's also wise enough and powerful enough to have a good reason to allow suffering to happen. The mere fact that I'm upset about this demonstrates my that I can see, that I believe in this infinitely capable God. But if he's infinitely capable, then I have to acknowledge that he has a better handle on things than I do. And that maybe, perhaps, this infinitely capable God is allowing short-range evils to happen in order to bring about long-range good. So, so there's this philosopher, his name is Peter Creed, and uh, he uses this great analogy that kind of explains this. He, he, he invites us to Consider the difference between a human being and a bear. I think most of us would acknowledge that we are smarter than a bear, okay? Uh, a bear doesn't have higher consciousness. A bear doesn't know how to bake, you know, how to use a bank machine. A bear doesn't know how to bake a cake. A bear can't contemplate the existence of God. A bear can't use the Pythagorean theorem, okay? Really, they cannot, okay? So imagine that a bear gets caught in a trap, like the illustration that we have up on the screen. And, and a park ranger comes, comes along to the bear, and he realizes that he wants to help free the bear. Okay, the bear is in distress, he's suffering, he's in pain. And so the park ranger wants to win the bear's confidence in order to release him from the trap. But the bear is in so much pain, he just says to the park, you know, he, he fights off the park ranger, he growls, the park ranger can't get near to him. So the only way that the park ranger, in compassion, can help the bear is to shoot the bear with tranquilizers, which he does. So he shoots the bear with tranquilizers, and then the bear realizes he's gets shot by the park ranger, so the bear doesn't like the park ranger even more. He doesn't trust the park ranger. He thinks that the park ranger is out to hurt him and to harm him. Now, of course, the park ranger cares about the bear, but it gets even worse. In order to free the bear from the trap, he actually has to push the bear further into the trap in order to release the spring mechanism in the trap. He actually has to hurt the bear even more to get him out of the trap. No, the bear is high as a kite. But even in his, his tranquilized stupor, he still thinks that this park ranger is out to get him. He sees no good reason why the park ranger should allow his suffering to happen in his life. But of course, as we know from our higher perspective, the bear is completely wrong. Well, why would the bear reach a different conclusion in the matter than we would? Well, it's because he has a limited perspective. There is a gap in his understanding. And what Peter Creed wants us to understand is that we too have a limited perspective. We too have a gap in our understanding between what we know and what God knows. That God's perspective is in fact infinite, and our perspective as human beings is, is finite. And his perspective involves thousands and thousands of years of history and knowledge, and his, his perspective in, in, involves billions upon billions of permutations and calculations and random events and intentional events and all these things that we could even begin to fathom or begin to understand. And I don't know about you, but I, but I have enough trouble managing my bank account statement. And I have enough trouble just managing my family schedule, let alone trying to understand how to manage the entire universe and how it ultimately works. And this is the challenge. From God's perspective, suffering isn't necessarily pointless, but from my from my perspective, I certainly think it can be. Or I seem to think it can be. Now what's interesting is, as it turns out, the Bible actually reinforces this idea that good can ultimately come from suffering. God can use suffering to accomplish good in our lives. I mean, Romans chapter 5, 
verse 3 to 5, so that it produces perseverance in us, produces character, produces hope. Uh, we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Apostle Paul's very teaching, he says that, that somehow that our weaknesses, our struggles, actually cause us to be more dependent on God, to draw near to God. Um, the great thinker, C.S. Lewis, put it this way, he says, we can ignore even pleasures, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to, uh, to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In suffering, God, God taps us on the shoulder in order to shake us from our slumber. He tangles us up until we tap out and trust Him. Sometimes God, God makes us cry uncle so that we learn to call Him Father. God uses suffering in significant ways. Now, sometimes the good that God accomplishes seems evident, but many times the good that God has a the suffering that we have in our lives isn't so evident. Sometimes the suffering just seems completely pointless. Sometimes suffering that we experience just seems ultimately meaningless. Now, what's interesting about Scripture is it acknowledges this as well. You know, the Bible also teaches that we might not we might not ever know all of God's reasons for allowing suffering. And there's a, the the character of Job in Scripture is a perfect example of this. Um, his story epitomizes the question of human suffering. In fact, uh, the book of Job is one of the greatest pieces of literature from, from all of human history, from ancient history particularly, that um, talks about this, this subject of suffering. Job experienced tremendous suffering. I mean, his family was decimated and wiped out. He lost all of his assets to these furious storms. Uh, there were cosmic reasons why this happened. And then his body was covered with painful sores. He was miserable. And on top of all that, his wife was harassing him all the time. I mean, that's even worse, right? So he has all these things happening in his life. You know, his world is falling apart. And what's interesting is the book, is, the entire book is dedicated to this question. Why has God cursed Job? Why has God allowed this suffering to come into Job's life? And what's interesting is when you get to the end of the story, Job never finds out. And even the reader, from our perspective, we know that God was involved and Satan was involved, but we don't know why God allowed suffering to happen to Job. And this is the reality of suffering in the Bible. The suffering in the Bible explains the origins of suffering, but it does not give particular answers to particular kinds of suffering, or why God will stop some suffering, why he allows others to happen. So much of the idea of suffering is a mystery. It really is. And the Bible is okay. It's okay with living in the tension of this mystery. And as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus, that could be our posture as well. Sometimes we just have to be okay with living in the tension of this mystery and understanding and trusting that God is infinitely good and infinitely wise, and He can manage the mystery of our behalf. We don't have all the answers. So that's the first response. Here's the second response. The next two will be shorter. The second response is this, that suffering is a consequence of free will. Suffering is a consequence of free will. The response answers uh, this question through origin. You see, in the biblical account, one of the reasons why suffering exists is because God gave humanity the capacity for freedom. He gave human beings, He gave you and I, the ability to make choices. And as free beings, we were able to love God and obey Him. But we were also free to disobey God, rebel against God, and break His commandments. So, 
this means that as human beings, we have the freedom, we have the capacity to make wrong choices. We have the ability to sin. And the only way that we have genuine freedom, the only way that we could have genuine freedom is to be able to choose to either reject or love God. If we didn't have this choice, then we wouldn't truly be free. Because here's the thing, friends. God wanted, God desired that we would have the capacity to love. Love is, is the highest of all virtues, of human virtues, of godly virtues. And if we did not have freedom, we would not be able to love. Love requires the freedom to choose or reject somebody. So, so if that's true, then God, if, if we were not free, then God could never have a loving, dynamic relationship with His, with his creation, if His creation was not free. If we were just automatons, if we were just robots, we could never love God. He could never enter into a loving relationship with us. Your Roomba at your house, even though it sweeps the crumbs off of your floor, does not love you. Siri might be your slave, but she does not love you. Alexa and Cortana, they're helpful, okay? But they do not love you. God created human beings to have a loving relationship with him. He did not create separate wives. We were created to be free and to freely love. And so, as the biblical story goes, humanity ultimately chose to reject God. And as a result, sin entered into the world, the world was cursed, humanity, though we were created in the image of God, we were marred by sin as the leaders over creation because of that happened to us. It happened with Genesis, you know, as long as you follow, the creation was broken, the suffering was the consequence. And so rejection, pain, and death, and suffering entered into the created world. It was the consequence, the natural consequence of human rebellion against God. And that's the origin of suffering in the biblical account. Now, I, I just want to say, it is, it's uber important at this point, uber, uber, uber important that you get this, is that God is not the author of evil and suffering. God did not create evil and suffering. God created the possibility for evil and suffering. But it was humanity who actualized that possibility. And it's important to keep that distinction, because often the question is asked for God than the author of evil. Now, he created the possibility for it, but it's human beings. So, suffering was a consequence of free will, and free will was necessary for us to be able to love God. That's the second response. Suffering actually requires a moral standard. The question of suffering is often cited by atheists as an argument against what is in God. But from an atheist vantage point, this argument actually becomes self defeating. Let me explain why. Uh, as an atheist, you must hold to what's called a naturalist worldview. In other words, as if you hold a naturalist worldview, you believe that this physical universe that we live in is all that there is. There's, there's no spirit world, there's no God, supernatural beings, none of that. The universe itself, the physical universe, came into being through random beginnings. Human beings, we climbed up out of the primordial scum, okay, and we evolved through the process of natural selection and evolution. It's survival of the fittest that got us to where we are today. And that's part of the whole worldview, the atheistic naturalist worldview. That's part of it, okay? But here's the problem. If, if, if you hold this view, if that is your viewpoint, you shouldn't actually care about suffering. Because if you care about suffering, you are creating a, a self-defeating argument. Let me explain why. Here's why. To begin to talk about the wrongness of suffering and evil, you actually have to admit that evil exists. 
And in order for evil to exist, then that means you must believe in a higher absolute standard of moral right and wrong. Does that make sense? Okay. If you believe in evil, you have to believe that there's a standard. If there's no standard, there's no evil. And if you assume that the universe is the result of natural causes, okay, then you have no basis for believing in evil. You have no basis for it because you're, the naturalist framework is all there is. There's no principles. There's nothing beyond that. It's just tooth and nail naturalist world, okay? So the minute you call something evil, you are actually making a moral judgment. And if you're making a moral judgment, then you are saying that there are moral absolutes. And then you've got to contend with the question, if I believe in moral absolutes, then where did they come from? And, it, and it's very, very difficult to do that without believing in something beyond this natural sphere that we believe in. Because if that's so, if you're saying there are moral absolutes beyond this sphere, you are actually being inconsistent in your atheism. You are being inconsistent to your own argument and belief. Now, this, of course, is a moral argument. I talked about this in the first week. I don't want to unpack it too much further, but I want to encourage you, if you, if you get a chance, to go to the first week, listen to the podcast, and talk about and uh, talk about it in much more depth. But let me, let me talk about the other inconsistency of this. Now, let me talk to you about uh, the challenge with the atheistic perspective. It's just simply this. is that in an atheistic perspective, in a naturalist perspective, suffering is actually normal. Suffering is just a natural part of the universe. So, so I want to read a, a quote to you from Richard Dawkins. I read this in the first week. I think it bears repeating today because this helps you understand what the naturalist worldview believes and should believe about suffering. If you are a consistent atheist, if you are a consistent naturalist and you believe this worldview, this is what your view should be about suffering. Richard Dawkins talks about it in his book, um, and we're going to put it up on the screen here. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. Wow. Okay, it's possible. Okay, here's an, here, he keeps going. He says, it must be so. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but pitiless indifference. What I appreciate about Dawkins is he is a consistent atheist. And as a true naturalist, he acknowledges there is no good, there is no evil, there is nothing in this universe but pitiless indifference. As it turns out, evolution, natural selection, depends on suffering. It needs death. It needs destruction. It needs violence. It needs the strong overpowering the weak. This is what natural selection is. So here's the question. If you believe in natural selection, then why do you think that suffering is more wrong? If you are an atheist or a naturalist, I, I just want to speak, you know, speak to this question. Would you consider this? Why does the problem of suffering actually matter? Why, why should it matter? I think it's a good 
Why is it that human beings feel this problem of suffering so deeply? Why is it that we are so affronted by the evil we see in the world? Where does this deep-rooted sense of justice, this deep sense of, of right and wrong, ultimately come from? This is the question I think we're, we're left contending so those are the three responses. Those are the three challenges. I hope they're helpful. I want to dive into the first one. Um, we might be able to intellectually solve the problem of suffering, but if you're suffering, or if you're near somebody who's suffering, intellectual arguments aren't entirely helpful. The real question is, does God actually care about my suffering? Does God care? So let me talk about God's three personal responses to suffering. The first one I would just say is this, is that God is near in our suffering. God is near in our suffering. We discover this in Scripture. The Bible teaches us that, that God is actually ultimately willing to journey with us through our suffering. Sometimes in our suffering, we feel that God is far off, but what we discover in Scripture is that God draws near to us in our suffering. In Psalm chapter 23, verse, uh, verse 4, says that even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. That's that famous psalm that we're going to start with. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is close to the broken heart, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. God is not far off with us, far off from us in our suffering. He's attentive to our prayers. Listen, I, I know as a dad, when your child is suffering, your ear is bent towards them. Your whole heart, your whole being is bent towards your child because you care so deeply about that child. And uh, our Father in Heaven is, is so much more a better dad than I will ever be. And what is clear is that his heart, his ears are attentive to his children when they are suffering. And how do we know this is true? Well, let me talk about the second response. It's because God himself suffers. God's ultimate response to the problem of suffering was to actually to enter right into humanity's suffering. God himself suffered so that we could draw near to him in our suffering. God didn't, God didn't send a representative. I mean, he didn't send a, a stunt double. His answering to suffering, his answer to suffering was himself, himself suffering on a cross for all of humanity. As, as, as the scripture teaches, he came into the world as a man. He experienced the, the limitations and the frailties of what it meant to be a human being in a human body. He was falsely tried. He was rejected. He was, he was beaten. He was whipped so that his flesh was torn to shreds. He was mocked. He was nailed to a, to a human torture device, a cruel human torture device, and died of asphyxiation. God suffered. God understands suffering. And because of this, because he experienced the worst of human suffering, God can actually empathize with us in our suffering. He is not far off. He's very near to us in suffering. The author of Hebrews spells this out in Hebrews chapter 4, is what it says. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, it's talking about who? It's talking about Jesus here. We have a great high priest who has descended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Note this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is attentive in every way, just as we were. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. God experienced all of the human realities of suffering. God understands suffering. God empathizes with us when we suffer. And so, friends, we can, we can turn to Christ as one who knows and understands suffering. We can argue with Him. 
We can lament. We can weep. We can shake our fists at the sky. We can curl up in a ball. Because we have a God who understands our suffering. Jesus' shoulders were large enough to bear the sins of the entire world. They are also large enough to bear all of our sufferings and all of our grief. Jesus sits with us in our lowest places. So if you're here today, and you're saying, I'm broken, Jesus was broken too. If you're here today, and you're, you're feeling despised and rejected, Jesus was, was despised, Jesus was rejected. If you're, if you're crying out in pain, so is he. If you were ever abandoned, Jesus was abandoned by his best friends. If you were ever betrayed, so was Jesus. He was, he was betrayed to a, bank, a kangaroo court for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus suffered, and he understands your suffering. If he's here today, he sits with you in your lowest place. And because Jesus suffered on our behalf, the text says this, says we can actually approach God with confidence. You know, even though we chose to exercise our free will and walk away from God, God turns his face towards us through Christ Jesus, and he made a way for us to come and approach him with confidence so that we receive grace and mercy in our time. And that's the story of the Christ. Jesus sits with us in our lowest places. So God is near in our suffering. God himself suffered so that we could draw near to him. And let me end with this. He said, God has a final solution to suffering. You know, anybody who suffers ultimately hopes for something better. We, I, I think if you've ever experienced deep suffering, deep grief of the heart, you want a pathway out of that. And when we look at the evil in the world, we want to see justice. We want to see something done about all of the problems that we see all around the world. We want to see the crooked made straight. We want to see the, the wounded healed. We want to see shattered lives restored. And as followers, of, in the face of suffering, followers of Christ, we actually have a great future hope. See, the, the beauty of the gospel, the magic of the gospel is that Jesus didn't just come to save our individual little lives. But the implications of the gospel are far greater than just our own little individualistic lives in the world. The implications of the gospel are actually cosmic in proportion. That Jesus came not just to save us, but he came to bring about the restoration of all things. That our broken and suffering world that we live in, this was never God's plan. This was never God's ultimate purpose. His ultimate plan actually includes a new heaven and a new earth. And he will come again. And he will bring about justice. He will right every wrong. He will fix everything. And we will dwell with him forever. This is the, the biblical story. This is how it ends. One day there will be a future. There will be a future without genocide. There will be a future without chemical bombs or cancer or bullies or backstabbers. We'll live in a different world one day. Let, let me just, just read for you this morning. I just want to give this as a gift to your heart this morning from Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 4. And it paints this tapestry, this picture of what this end is going to look like. And here's what it says. It says, Then I saw, then I saw, John, John is speaking. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down and the heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling places are now among the people. And we will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God, God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and there will be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This is the word of God. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And when he comes, he will solve the problem of suffering and evil. The challenge, the challenge with the atheistic position is that it cannot consistently find meaning in suffering. Remember, the atheistic position sees the world from a naturalist perspective. The physical world that we have is all that is. And in this framework, meaning in life can only be derived from a materialist point of view. Listen, if this life is all you've got, this is it. You know, maybe 70 years, okay? Then you've got to make the best of it. Acquire possessions, uh, get fame, build something, experience happiness, create a legacy that's going to endure. But this is all you've got. And so within this framework, within this materialistic framework, suffering is an intrusion. Suffering conflicts with your ability to create meaning. There's little room for suffering. It is meaningless. And as a result, what suffering can often do from a materialist vantage point is it can lead to outrage, it can lead to cynicism. Sometimes it can even lead to despair. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. this Christopher Hitchens, uh, he wrote an article for Vanity Fair. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, many of you know, he was a, a, a new atheist, a devout atheist. He was the best-selling author of the book, God is Not Great. And because he was an atheist, he was also a devout naturalist and evolutionist. And Hitchens was dying from cancer when he wrote uh, this article in 2010. Here's what he said. He's dying from cancer. He was undoubtedly oppressed by a gnawing sense of weight. I had real plans for my next decade and felt I'd worked hard enough to earn it. Will I really not live to see my children married? To watch the World Trade Center rise again? To the dumb question, why me? The cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, why not? I sometimes wish I was suffering at this cost and risking my life for the good of others instead of just being a gravely contingent patient. Allow me to inform you, though, that when you sit in a room with a set of other finalists, and kindly people bring a huge transparent bag of supporting them to plan in your own, suddenly it's not very and you either read or don't read a book while a venom sack gradually empties into your system. You feel swamped with passivity and discipline, dissolving in powerlessness, like a sugar glass in water. The one thing I, I appreciate about Christopher Hitchens is that he was honest and he was consistent with his views even until the end. But I want you to notice what he said. He felt like his life was a waste. He felt like there was no meaning to it. And in the face of suffering and death, there was nothing but, but despair and cynicism. I want to declare to you this morning that the Christian response to suffering is so very different. And I would argue that the Christian response to suffering is more beautiful and it's more compelling. And it is consistent with the deepest longings of the human heart. For the follower of Christ, every broken promise, every shattered dream, every tragedy that we experience in this life will ultimately be wiped away. And there will be a restoration of the life you always wanted. One day, 
one day we will see the culmination and the completion of our deepest longings. We will see the fulfillment of our soul's yearnings. In this life, each and every one of us will acknowledge that we crave relationships, rich relationships. We crave authentic love. We want justice. We want joy. We want peace. This is the stuff of life. This is what we were made for. And every human longing, whether it's been met or unmet in this life, ultimately is a signpost to something and someone far greater and far better. Our desires, each and every one of them, are pointers pointing off into the mix towards our greatest future hope. And the promise of Scripture is that somehow all the brokenness you've experienced in this life, somehow all of it will make the future hope even more glorious and even more joyful. One of my favorite books is, is The Lord of the Rings. I've chosen it, read many times, and convinced my wife to read it. She's now read it several times. One of my favorite characters in The Lord of the Rings is Sam Gadget. And what I love is this, this is the third story is that you know, the world has fallen apart, but the world has been saved. Sauron and Mordor have been destroyed. And Sam is, is back after his journey, and he discovers that Gandalf is alive. Gandalf is not dead, he's alive. And I, and I love his response. Here's what he says when he sees Gandalf for the first time. He says, I thought you were dead. Then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? a great question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Yes. And the future will be made even greater because it had once been broken and lost. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, they, they say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. You see, what, what pulls, pulls the believer in Christ through suffering in this life is our great and future hope. That's how, that's how we respond to suffering, because we know that there is, there is a signpost posting, uh, pointing offward into the midst. Randy Alcorn, in his, in his book, Heaven, he tells the story of, of young Florence Chadwick. And I've told this story before, but, but great stories are worth retelling. Florence Chadwick, in 1952, she, she attempted to swim the, the, the body of water between Catalina Island and the shore of California. It was a distance of about 30 miles. And she had already been the first woman in, in history to swim the English Channel both ways there in Baskin. So now she was attempting this new record to swim from this island to... California. And when, we, when she stepped into the Pacific Ocean to make this great swim, the weather was foggy, the water was chilly, the air was freezing. She could barely even see the boats that were supposed to accompany her as she swam across this channel. She swam for 15 hours. Sometimes she was determined, sometimes she was floundering and just wanted to quit. And whenever she begged to be taken out of the water, her mom was in a boat beside her. And her mom said, You're so close. You're so close to the end. Keep going keep going. She couldn't see. She just wanted to quit. She just wanted to give up. 
And finally, there was one point in her journey where she just she couldn't go in for me. She just stopped swimming. The fog was thick. Her body was wrapped in pain. And she begged everybody to just pull her out of the boat, pull her into the boat, pull her out of the water. And so they did. And she quit. And then they took the boat to the shore. And what she discovered is that she was only half a mile away from the shore. And she could have made it to now, the next day, when, when, when the reporters gathered around her, they, they asked her the question. They said, well, what do you feel? They said, why did you, why did you quit? What do you have to say today? And she said, all I could see is the fog. I think if I would have seen the shore, I would have made it. Seeing the shore would have ignited hope within her, and the fog and the cold obscured her vision. There was nothing to see that could enter her truth through her pain and through her eyes. But for believers in Christ, we have a great future hope pointing off to the man that leads us to suffering. Now, as I said, if you're investigating Christianity, my hope and my prayer is that you will discover that the Christian response to suffering is not only reasonable, but it is beautiful. And it is compelling. And it is consistent with the deepest affections of your heart. And I want you to imagine this morning, what if it's true? Would you consider that for a second? Could it be true for you? For those of us today, you are here, you are a believer in Christ, and you are among the community. I want us today to just simply reflect on the suffering of Christ. And moreover, to rest in the suffering of Christ. That they are for you. This morning, we're going to turn our hearts and our minds to Jesus. And we're going to reflect, remember, and return as we consider Christ's suffering today. I want to invite you to pray with Jesus Christ before we proceed. Lord, we thank you that you are not far off. You are near. You suffered for us and you suffered. You suffered out with us. And open our hearts to see this without you in our hearts. Open our hearts to accept this truth. And pray to you. For those here who are wrestling with this and struggling with this, pray for us every day. I pray for the peace that you want to And I pray for just our ability well thanks for listening to our podcast we hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God let me tell you a little bit about us Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton and you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected 
with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.